The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, we draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus came to earth. We draw near to the throne of grace because our mediator has lived. He died and rose again, and he lives always to intercede for us and to make a way for us into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. And that is really what we celebrate during this season, the incarnation, the mediator, Jesus Christ, making a way for sinners like us to be reconciled to a holy God and to come gladly and boldly into your presence and to pray and to seek blessings from your hand. And those blessings, O Lord, should and they do line up with your eternal purpose in the world. We thank you for that. We thank you for Alex and Amanda and others that have gone out from our church to serve you in distant parts of the world, to proclaim your name boldly, to be willing to go through trials that they wouldn't have to go through if they just stayed in their own country and their own culture, uh, such as language learning, culture learning, building relationships, being in in many places around the world not welcome, uh, not really uh, desired that they be there, uh, but being willing to do it for the sake of people that you have prepared ahead of time who will receive the gospel and will cross over from death to life. They'll be rescued from Satan's dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And they're willing to do that. And we thank you. Lord, we know their names. We have their prayer cards. We're aware of them. And we want to lift them up. We want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and be able to support not just those that have gone out from our church, but people that have gone out from thousands of churches. So we want to be faithful, O Lord, and and pray for them and to continue to give. And Lord, we know, based on the text that I'm about to preach, we know that ultimately they will be successful, that the kingdom will advance, that the lost will be found in Christ, and that you will be glorified. So help us to be faithful in our own role, Lord, to hold the ropes for those that have gone down into the deep and dark chasm of lostness, be willing to face trials. Father, as we in our own culture are surrounded by a growing tide of paganism, of secularism, of lostness, more and more people that don't know very much at all about the true uh, Christmas story. Help us to be lights shining in our own dark place. Help us to be willing to shine boldly for Christ, to seize the opportunity that this season gives us to talk about the reason for Christmas, the reason for this season, and to talk about Christ. So give us boldness in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in random conversations we have out in the marketplace. Father, help us to be bold. And now as we turn our attention to your word, Uh, As Wes prayed earlier from Psalm 19, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you based on the scripture that we just heard read. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 13, and you can also uh, turn as well to Matthew 24. We're going to be looking um, at both of those places. The scripture reveals that despite all of its swirling complexity, uh, human history has a purpose. We are moving to a destination. We're going somewhere uh, with all of this. 
It's not just random chaos, but God has a plan and a purpose. And the destination, the Bible reveals, to which we're going is a perfect universe, a perfect world, free from all sin, and a beautiful, radiant city. The new heavens and the new earth are that perfect universe, and that radiant city is called the New Jerusalem. And the Bible reveals that the light source of that new universe and of the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21 and 22, is the glory of God. The glory of God. Revelation 21, 23 says the city, the New Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And again, in the next chapter, Revelation 22, 5, it says they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. But what is that? What is the glory of God? In my studies and my meditations, I've thought a lot. It's an important topic. I believe the glory of God is the radiant display of the attributes or the perfections of God. The radiant display of the perfections of God. Sometimes it's just brilliant light. As 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Think about that, unapproachable light. How amazing must that be? For this reason, the seraphim and Isaiah's vision were constantly covering their faces, though they had no sin or guilt. But just in that unapproachable light, the presence of the glory, they were covering their faces. For this reason also, the theophanies or the displays of God where God shows up in human history, frequently attended by overpowering light. Like in Ezekiel's vision of the likeness of the glory of God by the Kibar River east of Babylon, Ezekiel 1 says, high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. So radiant light, brightness connected with the glory of God. So also at the time of the birth of our Lord in Bethlehem, uh, an angel appeared to shepherds outside Bethlehem, and it says in Luke 2, 9 and 10, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This was a glory of the eye, not of the mind or heart. It was just bright light, and it stunned the shepherds that night. But the glory of God is seen not just in brilliant light. Sometimes it's in the radiant display of the perfections of God, the attributes of God woven into the tapestry of historical events. Now that takes the eye of faith to see it, but it's there. The attributes of God woven into the tapestry of history. The perfections of God, attributes of God include his wisdom, his power, his love, Compassion, justice, patience, kindness, mercy, these are attributes. God has ordained history, the story of history, for this reason, to put himself on display in the sequence of events and unfolding history. Put himself on display in a history, a story that he predestined before Christ began, written in his own mind before time began. Now, the sequence of events, this history, has all been written out by the author of history. 
and it's intrinsically connected with the Christ event, the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself said in Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So history is linear, and Jesus is history. Jesus is what the story is all about. Now, the radiant display of the glory of God in heaven, I believe, will consist in part in a retelling of his mighty works in saving his people from their sins and in their individual contexts all over the world across the centuries. A retelling of the mighty works of God in saving sinners. I believe it's the most glorious thing God has ever done. His glory is greatly on display in salvation. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here's a multitude, a huge quantity of people from all over the world, every imaginable context, standing around the throne of God in heaven, praising God for salvation. Now, the specific stories of these individual people that make up these millions from every nation on earth will bring infinite and eternal glory to God. So a few verses later, Revelation 7, 13 Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? As I've said many times before, that story will take forever to tell fully. It is so complex, but it is woven through with light. It's woven through with glory. These redeemed, who are they and where do they come from? Well, how long do you have? Well, we have all eternity. So pull up a chair and let's hear the story of how God redeemed this one and that one and the other one from all over the world. Heaven will be filled with the the stories of the greatness of God put on display in the amazing tapestry of history that he wove in every century. This is the story of missions, the story of missions, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth across every generation of history. Now that unspeakable glory is before us this morning. We're going to focus just on two verses of Scripture. Mark 13, 10, right in the middle of our Mark study, and then a parallel verse, Mark 24, 14. Mark 13, 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, I want to just tell you something about the science of Bible interpretation. Uh, the Gospels, there are four of them. Uh, there are three of them basically take the same approach to the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because they see things from about the same perspective. And then the fourth Gospel, John, comes at it from a different perspective. But they all tell the same thing. We believe uh, that all scriptures God breathed is perfect, so therefore these are four perfect accounts of the life of Christ but they have some differences with one another. And when we have those differences between, let's say, Matthew and and Mark, we harmonize. We don't pit them against each other. We put them together. We try to harmonize. And that's not always easy to do. Generally, I look on it as a two-for-one sale. I mean, a lot of you folks are buying things and you're looking for good sales. I'm going to take both statements here as true, 
And if one of them tells me one thing, he said that, and that's true. And if one of them tells something else, he said that, and I just harmonize, I put it together. If you think differently, come and talk to me afterwards, and we'll have a nice argument. Um, at any rate, moving on. So let's talk about the context here. We're in Mark. We're moving through the Gospel of Mark. Mark 13 is Jesus' description of history, of the end of the world, and the events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the end of the world. And it came from a statement Jesus made in Mark 13, 2, not one stone will be left on another, everyone will be thrown down. Prediction of the destruction, at least of the temple, but probably really of the whole city of Jerusalem, but focused on the temple. It was the final week of Jesus' life. Things were hurtling to a conclusion, dramatic, turbulent events culminating in his arrest and his trial before the Jew Jewish leaders, his condemnation by them, his being handed over to Pontius Pilate for condemnation by the Romans, and then his crucifixion um, by Pontius Pilate and the Romans. So that's what we're, he we're heading. Now, Jesus has given a sevenfold denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of uh, the Jewish nation. It's fully depicted in, in uh, Matthew 23. It's, not, it's just quickly summarized in Mark, all right? But it culminates in this statement, Matthew 23, 38 and 39, Jesus says, behold, your house, your house is left to you desolate. Very important statement. Your house is left to you desolate. Desolate means empty. For, the reason I'm saying that is for, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not seeing me again is the essence of your desolate house. That's what makes your house desolate. Then Jesus dramatically walked out of the temple, never to return again. The disciples came up at that moment and chose that moment to talk about how beautiful the temple was. We shouldn't be surprised at this. This is what the, the disciples, the apostles were like, frequently off message. This is who we are as well. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Well, that must have been in incredibly distressing to them. So they come to him later, privately, when he's out of the city. He's up on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. They're out of the city, and they're there. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, 3, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the, end of the age? So Matthew 24 and Mark 13 cover roughly the same ground, but Matthew 24 in much more detail. There's almost nothing found in Mark 13 that's not found in Matthew 24 and then other things besides in Matthew 24. So I have my eye on both. Matthew 24 has the full question the disciples asked and the fuller answer that Jesus gives. The three parts of the question in Matthew 24 are, tell us when will this happen, not one stone left on another, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The complexity of Matthew 24 and of Mark 13 comes in discerning and, and kind of, to some degree, unweaving the tapestry of Jesus' answer. What is he talking about right now in this part? Is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 by the Romans? Is he talking about the end of the world? What is it? And, and they uh, weave it through. And so Jesus, I believe, is giving a history of the world 
between his first and second comings. It's bigger than just the destruction of the temple. Just to tell you, if you look at 13.10, Mark 13.10, a key word for me in that is the word first. First. This gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. First before what? Before the destruction of the temple? That didn't happen. So clearly, Jesus' scope is bigger than the destruction of the temple. He's looking at all, I believe, all history from the first to the second comings of Christ. And and he's traveling and, and traversing Uh, that history. So look at verses 5 through 13, Mark 13. Uh, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Here's our focus verse, verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So last week, we traced out those 13 verses and looked at the whole answer. Uh, Just to summarize, it begins with a warning against false teaching. He goes from that to a prediction of the ordinary convulsion of events uh, of history, uh, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, That happens in every generation, almost every year of history. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's all the time. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places. He calls all this the beginning of birth pains. The birth pains uh, means a terrible convulsion or pain resulting in something beautiful and wonderful. So we're heading to a good destination, but we have a lot of pain to go through first. That's what beginning of birth pains means. Then he mentions persecution. They will be handed over to the local councils. They'll be flogged in synagogues. These will be opportunities for them to, uh, to be witnesses to him. They will testify to Jesus. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. So the flow of human history is a canvas on which the masterpiece of redemptive history is being painted. These commonplace convulsions, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, arrests, trials, All of that is being sovereignly controlled to accomplish the spread of the gospel, to accomplish the salvation of God's people, to accomplish the glory of God. That's what's going on here. And it's amazing how God controls history, even down to the micro level, to achieve his purposes. I found a number of years ago a great example of this in the life of John Calvin. John Calvin is a great reformer who spent most of his life in Geneva. Great theologian, um, tremendous leader. Uh, However, he was not originally Swiss. Geneva is a a city in Switzerland. He was French, and he was basically a refugee, a religious refugee, running for his life because he believed in the Reformation. Uh, And so uh, the Catholic king of France was persecuting what they called Lutherans, and so he was running for his life. Uh, By this time, he had already written a significant theological work, and he was on his way to the French city of Strasbourg. He had in mind a quiet life as a scholar. He was going to be quiet in his room and eat like little bowls of gruel and write theology books. And that was going to be his life. That would have made him happy. He was 
that kind of person. So at any rate, so he was a scholar, but already well-known. But amazingly, en route to Strasbourg, he couldn't go there because an obscure war had broken out between the King of France and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. It's not at all one of the most famous wars ever. It's one of those wars and rumors of wars that Jesus talked about. But as a result, the road, the straight road to Strasbourg was blocked with troop movements. And so here this fleeing man, this refugee, has to divert through the city of Geneva. Cha-ching. At any rate, so there he is in Geneva, and William Farrell, who started a Reformation work there, hears that Calvin is there, and he thinks this is just the guy that we need for the Reformation here in Geneva. He was right. Calvin had no such intention. And so when Farrell came and said, I want you to work here in Geneva, he said, no, no, I'm going to go have a quiet life writing books in Strasbourg. We didn't say it just like that, but it probably went something like that. After Farrell tried to persuade him and wasn't successful, Farrell rose up in what Calvin called intemperate zeal and threatened him with the judgment of God if he chose a quiet life of academia rather than taking part in the Reformation in Geneva. Well, Calvin was wired to fear that kind of thing and said, okay, I guess I'll stay in Geneva. And he did. He was there most of the rest of his life. Now, what's my point? Wars and rumors of wars for a purpose. Are you saying that God orchestrated a war between Catholic King Francis of France and Catholic King Charles V so that John Calvin would end up in Geneva and not Strasbourg? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And other things too. Other things too, but at least that. And that's what God does. So isn't it amazing that history has a purpose? Even as it seems to be churning and random and destructive, God is at work in the midst of all of it. Now, the central work of all of this is you will be witnesses for me. You will be my witnesses. You are going to proclaim this gospel. Look at verse 10. And, this, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. The power of the Holy Spirit is central to this mission. He said, do not worry ahead of time what to say, what to speak. It will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit is the driving orchestrator and force of the spread of the gospel. Third person of the Trinity, that is his role. And he's extremely good at his job. As Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, in the midst of all this, there'll be a tremendous amount of pain for the witnesses, painful betrayals, family relationships will be compromised, your own closest relatives will turn their backs on you, everyone will hate you because of me, Jesus says. Intense persecution, and that's what makes this journey so glorious. The courage, the boldness, the suffering, the willing to pay the price. That's the story. So that's big picture. Now let's zero in on the command. Mark 13, 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now, in Mark's version, Mark 13, 10, it takes a command form, effectively. It's a command in Mark. It uses the Greek word dei, which means it is necessary. That's frequently a command, a sense of a command. It is necessary for the gospel first to be preached to all nations. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the message of the kingdom of God with Jesus as the king of the kingdom of God. He is the centerpiece. He is the king. He is the Lord. He's savior. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and all that means. That's what the gospel of Mark has been unfolding all along. Now, it's a message about the kingdom of God, that God is king. 
And the kingdom is the spiritual realm where the subjects of the king are delighted to have God as their king. And they are pleased to obey him and to follow him. They're delighted about it. God's sovereignty over rebels is a different matter, but the advancing kingdom of God has to do with individuals who throw down their weapons of rebellion and come in gladly under the kingship of Christ. So the gospel is, as we've said before, God, man, Christ response, that God created the universe, the heavens and the earth, and as the creator, he has the right to make laws and rules by which uh, we live our lives. God the creator, God the king, God the lawgiver, and God the judge. That's God. Man, we are created in the image of God to have a relationship with him, uh, to have a love relationship with him, and to love each other. But we have sinned. We have broken the two great commandments. We have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have sinned. And therefore, we stand under God's judgment, physical death, eternal death, and hell. Christ is God's answer to that problem. The Son of God, fully God, fully man, born, took on human flesh, we celebrate it this time of year, lived a sinless life under the laws of God. He died in our place as our substitute. A transfer of guilt effected when we believe in Jesus. Our guilt put on Jesus, he dies in our place. His righteousness given to us, and that's the white robes that we're going to stand in on Judgment Day and for all eternity. The imputed righteousness of Christ, that's what Christ came to do. And then response, we need to repent of our sins, turn away from our rebellion against God the King, believe in Jesus, trust in him, and we'll receive forgiveness of sins. That's the gospel, God, man, Christ response. It is necessary for that message to be preached, to be proclaimed to all nations. That's what he's saying. That has to happen first before the end of the world. That's what first, first is tied to the end of the world. All right. Why? Why is it necessary? Well, I'm going to give you four reasons. Four reasons why it is necessary for the gospel. Let's keep it simple because Christ the King commanded it. We'll start there. Christ told us to do this. These were his last words before he ascended back to heaven. He told us to do this. The Great Commission, so-called, which is his commandment to all of his, his, his followers to make disciples of all nations, is in all four gospels, different version in all four gospels, and in Acts. The most famous version is Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. To all nations, in all eras of history, that's the Great Commission. It is necessary, therefore, that this happened because it is the will of God and of Christ for us. Secondly, it is necessary because the gospel is the only way for sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God. There is no other way. There is no other plan. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Or as it says in Romans 10, 12 through 15, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the logic of missions. It's a logical work that... 
Paul does in Romans 10 using a series of rhetorical questions, assuming negative answers. The statement is made worldwide, anyone in any nation on earth who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus in faith will be saved. But how can someone call on someone they've not believed in? They can't do that, can they? No, of course they can't. And no one can believe in someone they've never heard of, can they? No, of course they can't. And no one can hear without someone preaching or proclaiming the message. No, they can't. Absolutely not. And no one can do that preaching unless they're sent out. Hence the need for missions. That's the logic of missions, and it is the answer to why it is necessary for this gospel to be proclaimed. Thirdly, it is necessary for the gospel to be proclaimed to all nations because God has chosen people in every tribe and language and people and nation. They're called the elect, chosen before the foundation of the world, and God wants those people reached. Jesus said in John's gospel, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. They must be brought in, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. Those are people, not just Jews, but all the ends of the earth. God has people out there. There will be people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. It's been ordained. They were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, and they have to be brought in. And the only way they're going to be brought in is by the preaching of the gospel. That's the third reason. The fourth, it is necessary for the gospel to be preached for the maximum glory of God. That's the ultimate reason for everything. It is for the glory of God that this be done. Ephesians 1, 11, 12 says, In him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory, that we might be, exist for the praise of his glory, and that we might praise his glory, that we might ourselves Notice his glory. So we will be glory and we will see glory and we'll praise him for it. That's the reason why. Or again, in Romans 15, 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So those are four reasons why it is necessary for the gospel to be preached. To whom should the gospel be preached? Well, we've already said to all nations. To all nations. The Greek is panta ta ethne. The word ethne is from which we get the word ethnic. And that's the key. We, uh, as Protestants, as evangelicals, we have had a progressive, growing understanding of missions over the last 500 years. Little by little by little, we've understood more and more clearly our obligation in this matter. For the first three centuries, the church just exploded all over the Roman Empire. People were going everywhere preaching the gospel. Apostles, non-apostles, everybody. And it was spreading everywhere. It went as far north as Scotland. It went as far south as sub-Saharan Africa. There's clear evidence of this. It went as far east as India. It went as far west as Tarshish, which is like Gibraltar. It was all over the place, and the gospel is spreading. However, once the Dark Ages fell and politics wove together with some form of Christianity, Christendom came about. We had the mission. Uh, uh, sorry, we had the Crusades, which are the most ab abhorrent misconstrual of mission that's ever been in history, still paying the price. But there was this mixture of church and state, and it was a mess. To make matters worse, the gospel itself, for the most part, was lost in a false gospel of works religion. The dark ages fell, but, praise God, the Reformation came and scraped away all that darkness, and the gospel was reclaimed. And the gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, was shining in those Protestant churches, Lutheran churches, Calvinist churches, uh, the Anabaptist churches. But 
those folks weren't doing missions initially. They were really just trying to survive. Missions at that point was done mostly by Roman Catholics to the Jesuits who are spreading the power of the Pope and of their Catholic kings like the King of Spain and the King of Portugal to distant places like Japan and other places. But they didn't bring the true gospel with them. Meanwhile, the Protestants continued to establish uh, doctrine and to reach their own countries, but not doing missions. So God worked in Protestant churches, little by little, a clearer understanding of our obligation concerning missions in four key steps. First step or insight comes from William Carey. He was a Baptist. He was a cobbler, blue-collar guy. And he wrote an incredible work called An Inquiry into the Obligation Christians Have to Use Means for the evangelization of the missions to the heathen. Heathen would be pagans or lost people. So he was a trailblazer in Protestant missions. So the insight is, we Protestants should do missions. We should go to distant lands and share the gospel. Not just the Jesuits should do that. We should do it. That was step one. Step two came from a leader uh, named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He went on his first missionary trip, and just like most missionaries did in the mid-19th century, uh, he stayed on the coastline, uh, coastlands uh, such as Shanghai, the uh, port cities. And he had a vision for the inland regions of China, teeming hundreds of millions of Chinese that had no hope of hearing the gospel. And so he founded something called the China Inland Mission. So step number two is we need to get off the coast and go into the dark heart of Africa, the dark heart of India and of China, and find people there who have no physical access to the gospel. Step two, inland missions. Step three came uh, from a leader at the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century named Cameron Townsend. He was a missionary in Latin America and South America, and he was working with some tribal people, and they were doing all of their work in Spanish, trade language. Uh, and at one point, one of these tribal uh, men said, if your God is so smart, how come he doesn't speak my language? Good question, all right? Good question. So Cameron Townsend started a ministry called Wycliffe Bible Translators to get the Bible into the heart language of people all over the world. And that work continues to this very day. Insight number four came in the middle of the 20th century from a missionary leader named Donald McGavern. And he began to see that the issue wasn't reaching political nations, like nations that are represented at the United Nations. It had to do with the understanding the word ethne as a people group, a group of people characterized by a language and a culture and a heritage and a self-identifying focus. And so that started the people group conception of the work. Pantata ethne means to all people groups. Now, how many people groups are there in the, in the world? No one knows. Only God knows. It's very difficult to see lines of border and demarcation between people groups. Uh, Donald McGavern did his work in India, and there are probably at least 5,000 people groups, if not more, in India. But it's, there's, there's a lot of overlap. JoshuaProject.net, which you can go and, and check that out, they say 17,446. As like an MIT engineer, I'm like, I don't think there's that many significant figures. I would say roughly 18,000, roughly 16,000. I don't think we can get down to 70,446. All right? However... There's a lot. There's a lot of people groups. IMB has a smaller number of people groups, but then you go to the next level, which is unreached people groups. What are unreached people groups? Well, it's defined as less than 2% evangelical in that nation. When I was a missionary to Japan, the Japanese were the largest unreached people group in the world, less than 2% evangelical. Since then, they've been superseded uh, by another group, but that's uh, a people group. So that's what unreached means. 
unengaged, another you is added, meaning as far as the IMB knows, there is no effort to try to reach that people group. There's no one working on that, as far as they know. So you've got the UUPG, which is un unengaged, unreached people groups. That's the focus. That's where the work should go. It is necessary for us to do that, for the church to do that. It is necessary for us to reach them with the gospel. And this stands as a permanent command from our Lord uh, and King Jesus Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's Mark, Mark 13.10, the command. All right, so look over at Matthew where it comes across as a prophecy or perhaps a promise. I'm okay with either one. Look what it says in Matthew 24.14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So prophecy, promise. What is Jesus saying there? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The preaching of the gospel to every tribe, language, people, and nation is as guaranteed as the end of the world is. They're equally guaranteed. It's going to happen. Now, this is a remarkable assertion by Jesus, more remarkable than not one stone left on another. Picture Jesus on that tiny little rocky outcropping there in the Mount of Olives, surrounded by a, a, a band of followers that were frequently off message. You know those guys. Surrounded by a very small number of people saying, this thing that we're doing here is going worldwide. Everyone on earth will hear about this. All peoples on earth, all peoples, all nations will hear. That's incredible. Effectively, then, the Jewish conception of their own kingdom will end, the Messianic kingdom, and my kingdom will be established and will reign for all eternity. It's awesome. Now, how does he know that? Well, he knows it because he's God, but he also knows it because the Old Testament scripture predicted that this would happen. God willing, next week we'll look at uh, Isaiah 49, but, you know, in Luke 24, it says, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It's going to happen. All right, well, what scriptures? Many. There are many scriptures, but I'm going to look at Isaiah 49 next week. Uh, Isaiah 49, 1 and 6. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Islands and nations, distant nations. God says to Jesus, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you, Jesus, a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is actually not saying anything different than Isaiah the prophet said or that many other prophecies gave. So friends, this is a great encouragement. I mean, how does a team play if it's guaranteed if they think they're absolutely going to win? They're gonna play better than if they think they're going to lose. How does, how does an army fight if they think ultimate victory is guaranteed? We're going to, they fight better. We are going to win because Christ is going to win. This gospel is going to win. It's very encouraging. Now, the task seems difficult. 3,150 unreached, unengaged, unreached people groups, none of them are easy to reach or they would have been reached. They're in very difficult situations or places. And I went through and, and thought about some of our units. If you guys don't know what the word units means, it means either a married couple, like a family, or single. That's why we use the word units, because some of them are single, men and women. Uh, I was reading about the Alawites of Turkey, uh, 1.29 million practice Shia Islam. 
They speak North Levantine Arabic. Significant minority in Turkey. Their goal is to keep their Arabic culture alive in the secular Muslim state of Turkey and pass that on to their children and grandchildren. They mix elements of Sufism, which is Islamic mysticism, and Shia Islam. Then we've got um, Thailand, where we have some units. I won't say their names, but they're there uh, working, and there are people there that are following a certain flavor of Theravada, Theravada uh, Buddhism. And then in Bangladesh, overwhelmed with poverty, uh, where we have another uh, family unit there. People there are practicing Sunni Islam. They're tragically poor, and they're in darkness. They're in the grip of darkness. When we think about how difficult it is and how long it takes to learn a language well enough to share the gospel in it and how long it takes to learn a culture and how long it takes to make friendships and then that whole journey and then how long it takes to see one person cross over from darkness to light. That's the challenge in front of us, and we need to be encouraged. Remember the lesson of the fig tree that we preached on a number of year, uh, years ago? It probably was. Sorry. Um, more like a number of months ago. Mark 11, 23 and 24. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has said will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, it will be yours. Mountain-moving, faith-filled prayer is made for the Great Commission. That's the mountain that needs to be moved. And remember what I said about prayer at that time. Prayer is not you giving God an idea he didn't have before or persuading something him to do something he didn't want to do. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is you learning from Scripture what God is doing in the world and asking him to do what he has decreed and ordained to do but hasn't done yet. That's what it is. And God has decreed and ordained that people from every tribe and language and people and nation will be standing in that white robe, standing in those white robes around that throne. That's what he's decreed. And it is encouraging to see the progress of the gospel. Those other signs, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, those don't mark anything. They're characters of every, every generation. But the progress of the gospel, that's like a ticking clock to the end of the world. If you were to put dots on a map all over the world, of what we would consider to be healthy, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in the year 1550, where would you put the dots? It would be almost all Central and North Europe, 1550. If you advance 50 years later, you would see more dots in that, those same areas, but still nowhere else, 1600. If you put dots where you had healthy, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in 1650, by then you would have to add some North American colonies in Virginia, New England, and other places. And more over Europe, but nowhere else, 1650. If you advance another 50 years, many more dots up and down what, you know, the 13 colonies. Many more dots in Europe and nowhere else. By 1750, by then you've had the Great Awakening, lots of dots all over the 13 colonies that eventually became the United States of America. You have some dots in the Caribbean where some Moravian missionaries went and sold themselves into slavery to preach the gospel to the slave population there. And then, of course, Central and North uh, Europe, some in the Catholic areas in Europe as well, but nowhere else. 1800, by this time, William Carey's in India, so you put a dot there. 
Um, but all the rest, just more dots in those same areas as the new country of the United States spreading westward. There's more dots there, et cetera, 1800. 50 more years? Unbelievable. The 19th century called the great century of missions. And they started to explode. By this time, you've got Hudson Taylor in the inland regions. You've got dots in China. You've got a lot more dots in India. Definitely dots in Burma. As by the time Adoniram Judson uh, finished his work, there were 25,000 baptized Burmese Christians. 1850. Dots all over. And by this time, you can start putting them in sub-Saharan Africa and other places as well. Add another 50 years, 1900, the great century of missions has ended. Uh, you got churches all over Asia, Mongolia, India, Burma, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa. 50 more years post-World War II, you've got the gospel spreading to the islands of the South Pacific, Erie and Jaya, Papua New Guinea. Uh, soldiers that had fought there then went back to some of those places with the gospel. Remarkable. 50 years later, the year 2000, the map's covered with dots. The entire world map. There's not a political nation on earth that doesn't have a healthy church. Not one. All the nations, I don't know how many United Nations are, but 230 some odd, all of them have some healthy church planted. But still, you've got those unreached people groups. So, big picture. I, almost, I can't tell you this pro progression without smiling. We are winning. The gospel's spreading. The Holy Spirit is good at his job. He puts a compulsion on people and they go where he wants them to go, and they, they lay down their lives as he wants them to, and the gospel spreads. But there's still work to be done. Uh, there are, I'm not going to burden you with statistics that would be hard to communicate, but there's been a kind of a flattening of mission endeavor over the last 10 or 15 years. It's a little discouraging as you look, and it's just a, a narrow window, but missionary thinker Ralph Winter said, more of the same will not get it done. So the burden is laid on churches like us and many other churches around the world to recommit ourselves to missions, recommit ourselves to the work left to be done, and to give sacrificially as we are called to do. So applications, first and foremost, if you're here listening to this mission sermon, but you came in here not a Christian, your work is to believe in Jesus. No point in talking about missions if you're lost. And so the first and foremost, you've heard the gospel, God, man, Christ response. I'm calling on you while there's time, repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, if you're already a Christian, understand both the command in Mark 13 and the promise or the prophecy in Matthew 24. Take it seriously. This is a command laid on us, but rejoice in the sovereignty of Christ to get it done. Be confident in the final outcome. The Lord is going to win. He will be glorified. I'm looking forward to all eternity of hearing those stories. It's going to be phenomenal. Pray confidently in the spirit of Matthew 9 for more laborers, laborers in the harvest field. Churches like ours send out two precious commodities to the mission field, people and money. That's what IMB does. We gather people and we gather money from Southern Baptist churches and point them strategically in directions. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we take every Christmas, our goal is 150000 Chase did a great job describing what it is. But the Southern Baptist Convention exists in part for that. It was originated for that, and it's why we do. It's this crown jewel, I think, of our cooperation with Baptist churches all over the country. We pool resources to do a job too big for any one church to do. We couldn't afford 
to send very many full, fully supported missionaries, just us, to these various places. So we pool resources with thousands of churches. And Chase said it, it truly, 100% of the money you give to Lottie Moon goes to missions. Now, I was a trustee for nine years. What that means is we take more money than Lottie Moon. It takes more money than Lottie Moon to put those missionaries on the field. I don't know how they tag dollars that go whatever. It's a, it, it gets pooled. The point is the budget is bigger than the Lottie Moon offering. Where does the rest of the money come from? It comes from something called the cooperative program where throughout the year, 12 months a year, we pool resources and a chunk of that goes to missions as well. But 100% of your giving goes and our goal is 150,000. So what I would say to you as a member of this church is engage, pray about your financial giving. We also have the opportunity through our home fellowships and through just your own initiative to get to know our friends that are serving overseas. No, we live in an iPhone or a smartphone world. You can contact them and be with them real time. I FaceTime with these folks. You can find out what they're going through. Support them. Pray for them. So we're going to close. I'm going to end this time now in prayer, and we're going to get ready for the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for the message that we have heard, um, the gospel message uh, of the gospel going to the ends of the earth and to the end of time. And now as we uh, turn our hearts to the Lord's Supper, we thank you for the word that we've heard and for the ordinance we're about to partake in. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.